Gracious Father, thank you for speaking to us in your powerful word. Please be with us by your spirit now as we seek to understand it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, isn't it remarkable how often we pass up once-in-a-lifetime opportunities? You know, every time you've walked past one of those telegraph poles with a little poster on there and some tear-off mobile phone numbers, you know, you can earn $200,000 a year working from home, two hours a week. Isn't that a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity? And yet we sort of know that we don't have time to look into all of these possibilities because we know that if something is too good to be true, if something seems too good to be true, it probably is. And so therefore we don't, we don't think about it. It's not possible to process every single opportunity and to really investigate it and think through every decision uh, in a fulsome way. In, instead, we have ways of deciding quickly at a glance, is this something worth my attention or is this not? And if we didn't have quick ways of doing these things, we really would go bonkers, wouldn't we? It's just not possible to process everything. But there are times when we have a responsibility to make a careful decision, especially when it affects others. I mean, could you imagine some of you have been on juries, I know. Uh, If you're on a jury and you're making a decision to either acquit or convict an accused, that's a significant decision, isn't it? You would approach that prayerfully and carefully. Uh, A leader's decision to enter or not enter a war. Wow. Who would want to have a decision like that on their desk? That's, again, a decision that needs to be weighed up very carefully. I think I want to persuade us this morning that we do have a responsibility to think about the claims of Jesus Christ and to listen to and ponder the words of Christ and, uh, as Christians, to be willing to speak bravely and clearly and not just in curated sound bites about the gospel of Christ. And we see this as we watch the gospel interacting with the personalities that we see in John chapter 7. We're still at the festival where we were last week, the Feast of Tabernacles, where Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem. Uh, You'll remember that uh, even before Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, he was already the talk of the town. He'd, He'd gone viral, if you like. Everyone was wondering whether he would come Because it was natural for him to be there, yet everyone knew that the authorities wanted to kill him, uh, and so would he come? Well, as you'll remember, he did come, and he stepped out publicly, and he began to teach in the temple, and people were surprised at his bravery. And uh, some thought, uh, this is what we see in verses 25 and following, some thought, well, look, maybe the authorities know that he's the Messiah. Maybe that's why they're actually not coming to capture him. Well, it turns out that theory wasn't correct. The authorities did not agree that he was the Messiah, but it shows you how energetic the speculation was. And the issue that began to dominate, you'll have noticed as we read through the passage, is where is Jesus from? Some had a theory that when the Messiah comes, no one would know where he's from. There were other theories discussed later on. You can see them in sort of verse 41 and following. I guess John records all of this theorizing for us because he wants us to understand that people were thinking about Jesus, some well-informed, others not so well-informed, but they were trying at least to assess the claims of Christ to be the Messiah. 
Well, meanwhile, there was another strategy that was being pursued by different people, and this strategy had less to do with thinking about Jesus and much more to do with trying to grab him and put him in prison. The chief priests and the Pharisees, we learn in verse 32, sent some of the temple guards to arrest him. But no one was able to lay a hand on Jesus because his time had not yet come. Now we know that his his hour would come, his hour to be arrested and nailed up on that cross would come. But for the time being, in this section of the gospel, it was God's will that Jesus should continue to operate freely. And I think this is a reminder to us that uh, if we face hostility out there in the world for, for being Christian, for speaking about Christ, uh, God is able to protect us for as long as he purposes to do so. And as long as it is God's will, we will glide through the fingers of our adversaries and be able to continue serving him as he wants. So I think it's a reminder that we can be brave and trust in God's protection. The next seven verses are mostly Jesus speaking. I'm now on point two of my outline, verses 33 to 39. As you'd expect, we see Jesus teaching bravely. He doesn't take a back step at all because he's got a message from his father that he's to pass on. Uh, uh, You could have imagined that with these temple guards out to arrest him, uh, maybe he would go on the back foot a little bit. Look, I'm sorry if I've offended. I, I really am all about love. But that's not what he said, is it? Instead, he issues them with a strong warning. Verse 33. Jesus said, I'm with you for only a short time, and then I return to the one who sent me. And then you'll seek for me and you won't be able to come where I have gone. See, it's a warning, isn't it? This is your opportunity. Jesus' public ministry was only three years. Half the time that I've been at St. Jude's already. I mean, you blink and you'd miss it. It was their unique opportunity to meet God's son in the flesh, an opportunity that only a tiny number of humans in the overall history of the world have have had the opportunity to do. It was their duty at that point to to listen to him and and to believe in him. Well, the same warning applies to everybody who hears the gospel. This is your opportunity to find peace with God. Don't delay. And please don't set yourself up for the bitter, everlasting regret of of wanting, of, of, of coming back and wanting that maybe you could regain those days of hearing the gospel and believing and it'll be too late. However, Jesus doesn't only deliver that stern warning. He also makes another of the the wonderful invitations uh, that we see throughout this gospel. It's verse 37. Uh, Do have a look at these verses because in many ways they are the key verses of the chapter. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, As scripture has said, 
Rivers of living water will flow from within them. See, in the midst of this controversy, this is a welcome refreshment, isn't it? This is what Jesus is about, giving life. The offer is to anyone who is thirsty, to anyone who senses that that this life is not where we can receive all the satisfaction that we seem to be built for and that we long for. There's so much we could say about these verses and about exactly which scripture Jesus refers to. I think he alludes uh, where he says rivers of living water will flow from within. I think he's actually alluding in a way to Proverbs 4.23, which was part of the passage we read earlier, uh, which that's about how the, the kind of the, the source of your earthly life is the, the makeup that's within you. But Jesus is here saying that there is, there is a source of everlasting life which will be given to you who will live inside you. We're talking about the Holy Spirit who is given to every Christian believer who will live inside us forever and become an everlasting well of life. The reactions are interesting. Some of the crowds believe he's the prophet or even the Messiah. The talk about Jesus' origin keeps on coming. You know, does he, does he come from Galilee? If that's the case, well, he can't be the Messiah because isn't the Messiah meant to come from Bethlehem? People are thinking about it. Now, you and I know that when it comes to the question of Jesus' place of origin, well, it's somewhat complex. He was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth, which is in Galilee. But also, as the incarnate Son of God, it's true to say, as Jesus persistently says throughout John's Gospel, that he has come from above. He's come from heaven. He's come from the Father who sent him. So the story about Jesus' origins is complex, but at the same time, if you've got a bit of patience, it's not that hard to understand, is it? But you see, the elites, the Jewish leaders... They did not have the patience for any of this and they were not listening. They were disappointed and angry when the guards came back having failed to arrest Jesus. I mean, it seems that what happened is that Jesus just had the crowd spellbound. It was impossible to arrest him. But the leaders accused the guards of having been deceived by Jesus and and then they say, look, this crowd that's listening to him so devotedly, well, they're obviously under a curse, the leaders say. Really, these elites make quite a stereotypical picture of how you act arrogantly, not listening, rejecting a message that they haven't even tried to understand. And uh, as the Apostle Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it is a sad tendency of the those who are impressive in this world, the rich and the powerful and the well-educated, they will often dismiss the crucified Lord without too much thought and waste their opportunity to know him. Now, I wonder how, I wonder where you feel you are in relation to the rich and the powerful and the impressive. 
Most of us don't naturally think of ourselves on those, in those terms. We wouldn't say, oh yes, we're the rich and the powerful and the impressive. But the fact is, we live in the richest part of Australia pretty much. The congregation of this church has always had quite a few PhDs and doctors of other sorts. I suppose I'd like us to consider this. If we, given the, the social circles that we're a part of, if we had been there in Jesus' time in Jerusalem, many of us would have been in that stratum of people who were the leaders, the Jewish leaders who were dismissing Jesus in the most arrogant terms. I'm not saying we would have been those who dismissed Jesus, but I'm saying we would have been mixing in those circles. And many of us do mix in those circles today. Uh, if, if you sort of sense that, that actually we are amongst the elites who have a sneering attitude to Jesus, I want to point you to someone in this passage who I think is very inspiring. Nicodemus was a member of the elite. He was a part of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. He was obviously wealthy, as we learn later in the, in the, in the book. You can assume he would have been well-educated. Now, we met Nicodemus before in chapter 3, He was the one who went to Jesus at night because he didn't want anyone to know that he was there. And he tried to have a conversation with Jesus, but he just hadn't understood how radical the human problem of sin is and how radical Jesus' solution is, that is to be born again. So I think at the end of chapter 3, Nicodemus went away rather puzzled, but you see, we meet him again here in chapter 7, and he's done some growing. Here in this chapter, he puts his head above the parapet. Just imagine the situation for him. He's there in the gathering of Jewish leaders. They're all going on about how this mob don't understand the law. They're ignorant. It's very difficult for Nicodemus to stand up and say anything contrary to the way the Sanhedrin is moving. But Nicodemus, he says something. He simply asked, in verse 51, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him? That's a very reasonable thing to say. The reply that Nicodemus receives just proves what a difficult environment that he's working in here. His elite friends turn on him sarcastically and they say, oh, are you from Galilee? And they make it clear that they have no interest in listening to what he has to say or to what Jesus has to say. They have no interest in making an informed decision, frankly. I think Nicodemus' bravery here is really inspiring. And I want you to notice that, to begin with, this wasn't even loyalty to Jesus that he showed here. It's simply loyalty to doing what's right and to listening to somebody, giving a person a hearing. Now, we all have a responsibility to do that, to give Jesus a hearing. We have a responsibility to be a thinking Christian, a a reading Christian. I mean, everyone should have read John Chapman's little book, A Fresh Start. There's a couple of copies for 10 bucks you can buy there at the bookstall in the parish room. that's, That's a book that every Christian should have read. C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity is another one, probably. 
I hope you feel a sense of responsibility to be an informed and a thinking Christian. I mean, I'm sure you feel a sense of responsibility to be informed and to think prayerfully and carefully about important matters. Uh, as we come up to, I think very soon, there'll be a date announced for when we'll vote on the, on the voice to parliament. Now, this is an important matter. I, I think it's a matter that Christians could disagree about. It's a matter that where faithful Christians could go either way. But I certainly hope that you, you're going to read or you've read the little booklet that you've got in the mail and think prayerfully and carefully over the arguments put for both sides of the, the point. I mean, this is just the basics, isn't it? We should be thinking people, careful decision makers. It's difficult to change your mind, isn't it? But in principle, we should all be people who are willing to change our minds under the influence of evidence. That's what a thinking person is like. Nicodemus was a brave and a thinking person. And throughout John's Gospel, you can see Nicodemus's thinking nature took him on a journey. By the end of the gospel, he is the one who is going to be, he will go along with Joseph of Arimathea to collect Jesus' body from Pontius Pilate and to give it a proper burial. Now, can you see, the elite Jewish circles would never accept him again after he had done that. He made a choice to do what was brave and right And that was going to lead to him not being accepted. Now, we're never told exactly whether he became a believer. But he was so intent on treating Jesus fairly and and on giving him a, a hearing. It seems to me likely that Nicodemus must have become a disciple. That Nicodemus must have heard Jesus' invitation, are you feeling thirsty? And that he must have replied to Jesus, yes, yes, I am feeling thirsty. The conflict and the hard-heartedness and the apathy of this world has left me feeling thirsty. Yes, I would like to drink at the life-giving stream of the Holy Spirit that only the Lord Jesus can pour out on me. So yes, Jesus I think Nicodemus would have said, yes, Jesus, I believe in you. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the wonderful offer of the gift of your spirit, whom we as believers know lives in us and has become in us a source of everlasting life. We thank you too for the example of Nicodemus who was brave enough to be a thinking person about Jesus and even to stand up against the elites who were not giving him a hearing. Father, please help us to be thinking Christians, to be brave ones, and to be full of joy and peace and gratefulness at your wonderful gift to us of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.